Well, good morning. Um, it's good to be with you. It's been too long. Um, I don't even remember the year. I mean, it's been at least four years, maybe longer, uh, since I've preached here, which is just too long. And so I apologize. But I also bring greetings um, from City Reformed Church. Um, the church is described, in, especially in the book of 1 Peter and also in, in uh, Paul's writings and Timothy, as a household. And I think that's a really important um, category for us to have in mind. And as I came here to visit you, um, I was just reminded of how much the church is a household as a whole, but a lot of interconnected households together. So uh, Katie and I, uh, when we first came here to Brookfield, it was probably around 2005. And I remember at some point I get connected and started teaching Sunday school. And I remember having a 16-year-old Ben Verholst in my Sunday school class. Now, the reason I'm able to be here with you today is because a 30-plus Ben Verholst is preaching at City Reformed Church this morning. Uh, but as I think about just that connection, but there's so many other connections. You know, Brandon is back, and, and Abigail is getting married, and you know, I, I see you, and I talk with you, and, and that's what the church is. It's this, this beautiful interconnection of households together that have common faith and, and a common worship. And you really only come to know what the church is um, when you can see it across time, and you can see it generationally, and then you see the real power that God has in using the local church. Um, so it, it's good to be here to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. Uh, our, our scripture texts this morning are, um, I have one more. Uh, so Psalm 37, 1 through 11, and the main preaching text this morning is actually uh, Matthew 5, verse 5. And so I'm going to read um, Psalm 37. Okay, I've got to figure this thing out. It's going to drive me crazy. Um, let's read th- Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11 first. And, and really, this is a background text. But I want you to hear the beatitude of Jesus in the light of this psalm. So Psalm 37, Psalm of David. Do not fret because of evil, men or be envious of those who do wrong for like the grass they will soon wither like green plants they will soon die away trust in the lord and do good dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture delight yourself in the lord and he will give you the desires of your heart commit your way to the lord trust in him and he will do this he will make your righteousness shine like the dawn the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before God, before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. And do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath and do not fret. It leads only to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace. And now, uh, from the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, uh, Matthew 5, uh, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The word of the Lord. 
If you would, pray with me. Lord, we uh, ask that you give us wisdom and insight into your word this morning. Teach us the meaning of meekness and gentleness, and uh, teach us what it means not to fret, as the psalmist says, um, to trust in you and to dwell in the land safely. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, Lord, in, in a place of, of, of joy or of contentment or relaxation or a place of anxiety or fear or, or perhaps bitterness, may you come to us in your word and may you speak to us and uh, may you be, uh, be gentle with us, Lord, and uh, show us your love, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So most of you are, I'm sure, familiar with the 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And probably if you know anything about Nietzsche, you know his famous quote, God is dead, right? Nietzsche is known as a great atheist philosopher, uh, but probably what you don't know um, about Nietzsche are his actual specific arguments against Christianity. And so if you will indulge me for a moment, I actually want to offer to you Nietzsche's central critique of the Christian religion. And it has to do with Christian morality, which he calls the most malignant form of all falsehood. <laughs> He doesn't have a very high view of Christian morality. According to Nietzsche, Christianity is what he uses, another word, a slave morality. Uh, It's something that originated out of a place of resentment of early Christians who were disempowered and, and had a kind of victim status and culture. And so he sees Christian morality as a kind of emerging from this, that the early Christians, they didn't have any social and political and cultural power. They didn't have any um, any sort of inherent nobility of, of their, their state in life. And so what they did is they took their weaknesses, their slave mentality, and they transformed that into a form uh, of, of revenge and, and power against those who had power over them. Um, in other words, um, they kind of transformed virtues like humility and gentleness into uh, virtues over those who are powerful. And nothing captures and makes Nietzsche more upset than the Beatitudes of Jesus because they really encapsulate everything that he thinks is a slave morality. Poverty of spirit, uh, mourning, meekness, peacemaking, uh, not responding uh, uh, and retaliating to your enemies, showing mercy, forgiveness, all these things. And what's interesting is that Nietzsche saw in all these virtues a form of deception and falsehood. Um, that, that, that they were disingenuous. It was a kind of passive-aggressive way of being in the world and manipulating things. And for him, the strong are those who flourish in the world. They're noble, they're creative, they're self-assertive. They, they live at face value and honesty and generosity, and, and a Christian morality is, is an assault on these things, and particular that of meekness. And Nietzsche says this, he says, nothing is more vengeful than meekness. Nothing is more vengeful than meekness. Meekness is weakness. It's mediocrity. It's hostile to life. It's life-denying. And so when, you know, again, Nietzsche's whole critique is that he thinks that when Christians talk about humility and, and meekness and not being self-centered, all the things that we, we kind of reflected on in our confession of sin this morning, 
uh, really behind it is like they just want power. They want power. And they use this language to kind of cover that up. Now, there's a great deal uh, about Nietzsche's reading and account of Christian morals or virtues that is very contestable. Uh, not only in his, is his understanding of Christian morality uh, deeply flawed, flawed, but also um, his own positive vision of what a moral person is. However, I think in listening to Nietzsche's critique, it helps us be honest. Because if there's one thing about Nietzsche that you have to be honest about is he hated hypocrisy, he hated falsehood and deception. And in many ways, he was responding to a Christianity in his age which was deeply corrupted and hypocritical culturally and politically. And it's very likely that, that he never really saw these virtues actually lived out in a true and an honest way. And I think, in many ways, this is a story of the church um, in many ages, and I think nothing has really changed today. The fact of the matter is, is that we as Christians, we do want power and control. And when we do, there's many ways that, that um, we're willing to... Um, let the teachings of Jesus become distorted in our pursuit of power and control. And it's undeniable that in America today that many Christian values have become part of the culture wars, right? Um, And perhaps more than we would like to admit for ourselves, many of us are functionally speaking Nietzschean when it comes to living out the virtues of humility and meekness, of forgiveness and mercy and enemy love. We might talk about it a lot, you know, maybe in the household of faith, yes, that's we really need to be merciful and meek and humble with one another, uh, maybe with interpersonal relationships. But you know what? In the marketplace, in the public sphere, in government, in the academy, it's a dog-eat-dog world. And if you want to survive, you have to play the game right? That's the way the world is. And so I think what ends up happening is we don't even, you know, in an an attempt not to be too disingenuous, we don't even talk about these and reflect deeply about them. And so we assert with Nietzsche a kind of similar vision of the importance of power over myself, nobility and strength and self-assertion, and freedom of self-expression. And yet, And yet what Jesus says about meekness stands true. Nietzsche couldn't comprehend it. And it's probably because he never really saw a Christian live it out. And as much as we might want to try to spiritualize away meekness in our lives, it is really um, central. Meekness deals with power. That's what that virtue deals with. How do we think about and use power in the world? Jesus says, blessed are the meek. And the word gentle here is a a synonym. I'm going to use these um, interchangeably. Blessed are the gentle, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit heaven. He doesn't say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit an otherworldly place. He says, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. And Jesus right here is very much uh, quoting and evoking Psalm 37 here. In that verse 11, right? That the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And so, if you, just for later on, if you want to reflect on meekness, go back to this psalm. 
read it and reflect on it with this, this theme of meekness, because the whole psalm is about that. And Jesus is evoking it. It's about the meekness of God's people as they struggle and they confront injustice and wickedness in the land. They learn to wait upon the Lord to deliver them. The meek are the true citizens, the true political inheritors of the land. And in the Jewish imagination, the earth is the land, right? It's a political geography. And here what Jesus does is he expands it beyond simply the, you know, Israel, but he applies it to the whole creation. The meek are the true political inheritors of the earth, of all creation. Now, we can't even treat meekness as a minor key in the life of Jesus. Jesus makes meekness and gentleness central to his own messianic identity. This is especially the case in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, you know this passage. It's a well-known passage in chapter 11. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, Jesus, interestingly enough, he, uh, no other virtue does Jesus evoke in the way he does meekness to help us understand his identity. Even later in the gospel, in chapter 12, he is explaining himself, and he evokes uh, Isaiah 42, which is about the suffering servant. And he quotes about himself, applying this to himself, he says this, he, that is the servant, which is Jesus, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And again, what Jesus all the time in this reflection on meekness is combined with a reflection on justice and righteousness. Meekness is symbolically acted, enacted by Jesus at the triumphal entry. So that, that Sunday, Passion Sunday, or the Sunday right before a Good Friday, we celebrate the triumphal entry, right? Jesus enters Jerusalem. Here you have the king, the creator of the universe, and he's riding on a donkey as one who is humble. And he quotes from Zechariah. This is what the gospel writers apply to Jesus as they understand that text. Behold your king is coming to you, gentle, meek, mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. So meekness is central to Jesus' identity. And this raises a really important question, which you're probably wondering, well, what does meekness mean exactly? What does it mean for us to be meek? The essence of meekness has to do with power, how we use power. Uh, now, some of you um, might be familiar with uh, a quote about meekness, that meekness isn't weakness, but strength under control, right? Have you heard this? That's a good definition. It's a good starting point. But there's more to meekness. And, I, and sometimes I think that definition can be a little bit misleading because it often th- thinks about meekness as, well, you have power and you need to set it aside. And what I want to explore with you this morning is the way that meekness isn't just us Uh, abdicating power or setting power aside, but actually using power in a different kind of way in the world. Meekness is not about restraining or abandoning power. Meekness is the wise use of power. And Jesus, if you think about the life of Jesus, Jesus, it never ceases to be meek, even when he is exercising extraordinary power, casting out demons, confronting the Pharisees, raising the dead, 
You think about Jesus. He, he, as, the son of, as the Son of God, he possessed all the power in the universe in his little pinky finger. Right? He could speak and calm the seas. He could speak a word into a grave and Lazarus comes out. He could cast out a demon with a word. Never was one more powerful in all the universe in a human body than this man. And yet, the way he describes himself is, I am meek and lowly in heart. A bruised reed I will not break. A smoldering wick I will not snuff out. And you think about the culmination of Jesus' life and the cross and the Passion Week. He doesn't surrender his power, but he doesn't use it to protect himself, to remove himself from the situation of arrest and imprisonment and torture and ultimately the cross. And yet on the other side of that, right, Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God in power. And so the call to meekness is a call to be like Jesus in the world, to move through the world and to think about power in the way that Jesus did. And so I want to do that this morning with the time we have left. Explore with you the meaning of this virtue, meekness. And there's two um, points I want to make about meekness. First is this, that meekness is, a sacred, is, is, is a flourishing power. Meekness is power used for the sake of others' flourishing. And the second point I want to make is that meekness is a power for connection, for relationship. Now, before we can understand what meekness is, we need to understand and reflect a moment on how the Bible views power. Now, in our culture, we tend to be very suspicious of power, of people with power, and for good reason, right? We think of that famous quote from Lord Acton, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this is true, right? Power does corrupt. But after the fall, um, but prior to the fall, when you think about when God created human beings in his image and what he commanded us to do, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, power is part of the original creation. God gives power and authority to human beings over the creation, um, and it's not a result simply of the fall. It's a good thing. Power is good. And the psalmist, Psalm 8, kind of riffing on the, the uh, image of God text from Genesis, repeats this theology. He says, speaking of human beings, you have given him, man, dominion over all the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. The thing that distinguishes human beings most, as image bearers from the rest of creation and animal life, is power and authority. If you just read the text on its own, that is the main takeaway, right? What distinguishes humans as animals from the rest of animal life is that humans have power and authority over the rest of the animals. So power is not necessarily a bad thing. Power is given for the sake of fruitfulness, of flourishing for all creation. So the commands for dominion and authority, they're not for us, you know, to be understood as for us to use and abuse creation for our own ends as we see fit. It's ruling power that is ordered and directed towards fruitfulness and flourishing of all creation. That's why God gives it, right? To seek the flourishing of all those things, to draw out their full potential. Sometimes when we think about creation, 
we think about it as the unfallen creation in Eden as this perfect, fully formed uh, place that, you know, the, the first couple was sat, you know, put in. And there's the right, without, there, it was a perfect place, but, you know, the original creation was like an infant. It was like an infant. It was like a child that needed to develop. And part of the command that God gives to human beings is to help the earth and creation to grow up, just like they themselves needed to grow up, even as they were created perfect. And God gives, for that sake, power. Let me give you an example of how you might think about um, power and authority as given for the sake of flourishing and nurture. Think of the example of a mother and an infant child. When you think about the gift of power, as compared to uh, an infant, a mother has an incredible power, right? Incredible power and authority over her child. And in all the ways, a mother is more powerful than a baby. But we hardly ever think about that, right? You never think, man, that mom, that's a powerful, that mom, that mom has power, right? We don't think about that because, you know, a mother with a baby, a mother with a newborn is the embodiment of gentleness and nurture and care, right? Um, and yet, when you think about what it means to, to give birth, <laughs> to raise uh, especially a, an infant or a newborn child. I mean, it's an incredible act of power. Conceiving, birthing, nursing. It's one of the most incredible acts of power and authority in all creation. And the gentleness of the mother is not an against uh, an her giving up her power. It's actually the wise use of her power for the sake of the flourishing of a child. God originally endowed human beings with the gift of power and authority to be stewards, to be like mothers in creation, to nurture flourishing and life. That is why God gives power. Well, the problem is, is that after the fall, um, power gets corrupted and badly damaged, and it's unequally distributed in creation, and we misuse it. We use power to protect ourselves We use power to advance our own goals and agendas at the expense of others. But because that that stuff happens doesn't mean that power is inherently bad. Again, this is where the virtue of meekness is so important because it's, as image bearers, it's it's God teaching us what it means to recover the right use of power. Um, I love, there's a Netflix documentary that came out a couple years ago called uh, My Octopus Teacher. Did anybody see this? It's a story of a man from South Africa who lives on the Eastern Cape, and he's a, he's a filmmaker, and he decides that every day he's going to go into the ocean through the whole year, and he's going to dive. And in one of the early moments, he, he, he's diving and, you know, swimming through these large kelp beds, and he finds this, this little octopus, and he begins to follow the octopus, and the octopus seems to be open to him, following him. And so the next day he comes back, the octopus sees it there. And she sort of, each time, she sort of leads him deeper into her world. And the thing about that story, which is he often described his relationship with this octopus and and, and the ocean in terms of the language of gentleness, Um, that he was gentle. And and he made space for the octopus and restrained himself and and what he was invited in (laughs) to this octopus's world. 
And this is, again, a, a beautiful picture of how, uh, can, how we use our powers and ways to make space for others to flourish, especially those who are more fragile and weaker than us, for them to grow and to, to be nurtured. Gentleness is directing our personal power for the sake of another's flourishing and good. Gentleness is directing our, our power for the sake of another's flourishing and good. And, and I love that image of the, the octopus is sort of like, you know, as he relates her in gentleness, like draws him, allows him more and more into her, her world. And that brings us to the second point about gentleness. Because gentleness, the goal, the goal of gentleness and meekness is for establishing connection. Establishing connection. By connection, I mean relationship. There's no flourishing without connection, right? There's no growth without connection and relationship. Meekness is learning. Meekness is learning how to use our personal power for the sake of establishing connection. This is so important. <laughs> this, this unlocks so much of Jesus' ministry for us. Um, Jesus' use of power is always personal. It's always relational. It's power that seeks connection, intimate connection. It seeks face-to-face encounter with others. And when you think about the great acts of Jesus' power, the things that we think, man, there's, there's power here, right? When he's casting out demons, when he's healing the sick, what he's doing is he's removing the barriers to connection. Think about the woman uh, that was bleeding for 13 years, and she's in a crowd of people, and she's like, if only I could touch the hem of his garden, I know I would be healed. And she does it, and the text says, and power went out from him, and Jesus knew it, and he seeks the woman out, and she's afraid that he's going to shame her because she shouldn't have been in the crowd and shouldn't have touched the rabbi, and what does he do instead? He asks her to stand up, and he says, calls her a daughter of Israel. What he does is he restores her to connection. Think about when Jesus came to the man, the garrison man who had all the deedens and was chained up on the outside of town because he was too dangerous to others and to himself. And Jesus goes and he casts out the demons into the pigs. And it says the man just sat before him in his right mind and at calm. And he wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, go back to your family. Go back to your family and tell them what God has done. See, Jesus uses power for the sake of connection. Jesus uses power for the sake of connection. But in, again, in a sinful and fallen world, the temptation for us is not to use power for the sake of connection, but for the sake of protection. We use power to protect ourselves and to seek, um, to be in relationships with other people. Um, to maintain connection is dangerous. <laughs> it's dangerous because people can hurt you. If you are vulnerable, if you're open, they can hurt you. And, and so we're tempted to use our power in ways that will keep us from getting injured or harmed by others. But at the root here is this paradox of the gift of power. And I think, again, this is why gentleness and meekness is so important, because gentleness is the exercise of power with vulnerability. Gentleness is the exercise of power with vulnerability. To be a gentle person is to be vulnerable, to be open. It's to 
refuse to insulate and protect yourself from others and relationships and being harmed. And, you know, th- this is something that in, in, in uh, social science and psychology, there's a, there's a whole field called vulnerability studies. And it's, it, it's actually just discovering what is deep biblical truths that go all the way back to the, the, the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were standing before one another naked and unashamed. That's what it means to be vulnerable, and you need vulnerability for the sake of connection. There's no connection. There's no real relationship that is true and authentic without vulnerability. Vulnerability is how we build relational trust, social trust, and you think about the person of Jesus. Again, the most powerful man in the universe that could just snap his fingers and make anything he wanted happen. Here is a man who people could relate to, could connect with, from the lowest to the highest, because he's meek. Now, friends, I want you just to consider for a moment, how is it that you make yourself invulnerable? What is your way of making yourself invulnerable and protecting yourself, using your own personal power? And again, you know, a lot of times you think, well, I don't have power. Um, You know, pastor, you have power. It's true, I do. (laughs) It's easy for me to misuse it. But you all have power in your relationships. We all have personal power. And I think we all have, you know, we we call them defense mechanisms, different ways that we try to keep ourselves from being hurt or harmed by others. You know, we use our intelligence and our wit, so, you know, we we, we front just like, I'm really smart or I'm really funny. Or, or, Or we do, we just withdraw. We get nervous or anxious or something, you know, and we withdraw. Or when we're in relationships and and we're, we're dealing with difficulty and trial, and our, we're tempted to get angry. We're tempted to just sh- shut down and close people off. Again, this is all in the, in the effort to not be vulnerable because we're afraid of being harmed and injured. We use power not for connection but protection. But I, to be clear, I don't, I don't mean here that, you know, you should be you know, always have to wear your heart on your sleeve and, and that you never have clear and good boundaries and relationships in life or, or that you need to be socially and emotionally masochistic. That's not at all what I'm talking about, right? But to be vulnerable is just to be open, to let people in, to let yourself be known in a community. To be vulnerable is to not always be trying to control and manipulate relationships, and outcomes. To be vulnerable means that you're willing to suffer in order to stay connected with another person. They are willing to endure some suffering. And again, this is complicated, right? Because there is abusive use of power in which staying connected is not going to help the other person or you, and so you need to disconnect. But most of the time in our relationships, we experience suffering or difficulty and we get defensive or angry, we get withdrawn and we don't, and we lose the connection. See, again, meekness is that, it's, see, again, meekness is not like setting aside power. It's a different kind of power. It's the most difficult kind of power that gets internalized. It's an inner strength. How can Jesus stay connected to us even as we are sort of killing him, rejecting him? There is real power in meekness, inner power, inner strength. But we fail, right? We all fail at this. <laughs> we misuse our power, we, we overreact, or we underreact, or we withdraw. 
our experience of meekness, friends, needs to flow from our union with Jesus Christ. And this is a really important point about the virtues in the New Testament. Um, When Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, these are virtues, right? They're fruits of the Spirit. These these represent Jesus' own inner life, his own emotional life. And the way that we grow in union with Jesus is through the practice of these. But the way that we grow in the practice of them is through being united with Jesus. And I want you to think again how Jesus came to you. It is the genesis of Jesus that established the relational connection of faith. Right? You were a smoldering wick. <laughs> think about that image, you know. If you think of the candle and a little wind blows and it's almost like that. And Jesus says the way he is towards you is like that smoldering wick that could be snuffed out just with a little bit too much breath and he comes to you and he doesn't snuff you out. Or like that bruised reed that just wants to fall over. That's what we are. And when he came to us, he didn't break us. He was gentle because we are fragile and we are broken. We are that smoldering wick. He didn't overwhelm us. He didn't give up his power, but he used his power to connect with us. Friends, Jesus' promise to the meek is that they shall inherit the earth, but he makes another promise which reflects that of the psalmist, which is not just that we will inherit the earth, but that actually in his meekness we find rest. The psalm, Psalm 37, the refrain throughout it is, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, Know that God is God. Let God be God. Meekness is the byproduct of knowing that God is God, that God is in control of the world, that he's in control of all the outcomes, and that I can be at rest with that, and I can be okay with that, and I can roll that burden off and let him take it. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest soul rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, teach us what it means to roll the burdens of our lives off to you. Teach us what it means uh, that the yoke of our life is actually Jesus' yoke, and he's the one who bears all the weight, and that in him we can be at rest, in him we can be meek, and how we think about our power and what you give us. Lord, give us a vision of how to use the little power that we have for the sake of flourishing of those around us and for connecting in love with those around us. And we remember most of all the way that you came to us in gentleness and love dust, and stay connected with us even when we hit and scream and kick back. Your grace still holds us. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.